Well, this evening I'm just so pleased to have my brother Jeff Flint. Many of you know Jeff, but if you're visiting with us, Jeff is the lead pastor at First Baptist Church downtown. And Jeff is just a great friend of mine. We graduated uh, Regent College together uh, for seminary. And uh, we meet almost weekly for lunch and just sharing life together, sharing um, the joys and pains and everything of family life and ministry. And... um, this is also just a great example, I think, of the larger church, you know, of um, we, we typically share the pulpit a few times a year at each other's congregations. And, and I just so appreciate Jeff's heart for the Lord uh, and also the gifts that he brings in preaching. So it's without reservation and with uh, utmost uh, <laughs> joy that I invite him to come and preach the word uh, this evening. And it's a great passage. Woo! So uh, do you want this on a stand or just? Okay. All right. Yeah, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. That will be our text for tonight. So uh, we had something happen in our Baptist church this morning that has never happened in 129 years that we've been around. Uh, It was really quite amazing. Uh, We had our prayer time uh, this morning, and... Uh, and, and someone just started speaking in tongues. Just started, uh, just started, uh, you know, speaking the Lord's language, and and then uh, blessed us by telling us what she actually said. You know, and this is one of our longtime members. One of our, um, if you've ever seen the movie Bernie, um, you know what I mean. Um, the uh, I call them my J L O Ls, Jeff's little old ladies. So J L O L one of my one of my L O Ls uh, just started. I mean, it was it was uh, it was quite amazing. So the Lord's doing something here in Bellingham, and it's always fun to hear what God's doing here at Letter Street's Covenant Church, and to be blessed by the testimony of your pastor. And um, you know, we really believe the Lord is doing something here. So um, yeah, so Genesis 15 is where we're at tonight. I'm, Thank you. We'll get there. We'll get to that that page, page nine in your in your pew Bible. So Genesis is the book of beginnings. Genesis means beginning, and I think that the whole Bible. I'm not the only one who thinks this, but I think that the whole Bible can really be divided into two parts. Uh, the first part is Genesis chapter one through eleven, and then the second part is Genesis chapter twelve through Revelation. So, part one, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, um, you know, God creates the world, everything in it, creates human beings who then choose to go their own way, do things on their own. They thought that they knew how life worked the best. They wanted to be like God themselves. They wanted to take his place. They wanted to live independently of God. And as a result, pain and brokenness and sin and poison and suffering entered into the world and entered deep into the hearts of humanity. So the first part of the book of Genesis sets up that tragic story, kind of climaxes at the uh, chapter 11 where they build this tall tower to make a name for themselves to say, our name is greater than the Lord's name. then at the beginning of chapter 12, so, so Genesis chapters 1 through 11 co- covers, you know, Moses covers 
5,000 years of history, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. He just burns through all these people, all these generations, all these years of, uh, of people, of families. And then in chapter 12, he just downshifts. And, and the rest of Genesis is going to be about one family. Uh, I think of it like uh, bullet time from the movie, the Matrix movies. You know, every, you know, you're going along, you're going along, and then everything just slows down, and and you and you really get a glimpse, uh, you get really get a clear picture of what's going on in that moment, and you get a real uh, slowing down of the story so that you can um, make your point. And so, uh, through the first. 11 chapters, 5,000 years, Moses burning through. Then chapter 12, he downshifts and God speaks. After, after you know, between Noah, the last, time, the last time we've heard God speak is Noah, chapter 6. So between Noah and Abraham is 3,000 years. God finally speaks once again. Um... You know, I want to encourage you, if it feels like God has been silent to you, if God has been quiet to you for a long time in your life, I want to encourage you, just hang in there. You know, what we know now and what we have now on this side of um, history, um, we don't have to wait that long for God to speak to us. Um, and hopefully it doesn't take 3,000 years <laughs> once again. Because of Jesus Christ, we believe he hasn't, and so, uh, but you kind of get a picture of what's going on from a, at the beginning of, of chapter 12. So part two of the Bible begins in chapter 12, runs to the end of Revelation, and we see what God does about what has happened in the first 11 chapters of the book. The call of God breaks through the silence, uh, like a tornado siren breaks through the silence in a uh, Midwestern town. The call of God breaks through the silence to create from one person a whole new kind of humanity, a whole new kind of people. Through Abraham, God will form a people whom he would bless and use to demonstrate God's mercy, God's character, God's justice, God's grace, God's inclusivity to the nations of the world. The call of God steps into the barrenness of Sarah's situation. The situation was totally hopeless for them. She was barren. She couldn't have kids. God steps into the barrenness. He steps into the oldness of Abraham and Sarah. Now, all of you look pretty young. None of you look really old to me. Um, but if you are old and you are here today... If you feel like, or if you feel like you're too old to be used by God, just consider Abraham and Sarah. Abraham found a vigor, found a joy, found a purpose, found a meaning in his later years. The purposes of God in your life do not stop once you hit retirement age. You know, even as younger folks, our goal should not be to, to hit retirement age and then, and then we can just coast or we can um, maybe go to church if we want to or not want to. But, then, but those are the times when we can really invest, really think about uh, the generation coming afterwards. Um, the purposes of God do not stop once you hit a certain age or once you hit a certain uh, physical capacity. Abraham's story begins when he is 75 years old. Later, we'll find out in Genesis, he's 100 years old when, before they have a kid. The point is, they couldn't do anything to make a future for themselves. 
They couldn't do anything except, except to be open to what God had for them, to listen to God, to trust Him, to believe Him, as Paul said, that He could do, that God could do what He says He would do. Now, for Abraham, that meant making him the father of a great nation. As long as that nation lived from the strength of God's call on his life, on their lives, rather than from a place of independence, as long as they lived from a place of that call, the strength of that call, they would be all right. Why? Because the call is powerful enough to enable us to do what it asks us to do. The call of God is what gives us the strength. As someone has said, not me, the Word of God not only has the power to inform, but to perform everything it asks us to do. Back in chapter 12, you hear the call of God to Abraham. Here in Genesis 15, we see the covenant of God with Abraham. And I know you did this uh, text last year, but uh, this text really should take your breath away. We are treading on sacred ground here. It's really one of the most amazing texts probably in all of Scripture. It's also probably one of the weirdest texts in all of Scripture. Uh, we're really standing on holy ground. It's sacred territory in which, into which we are treading. So, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After this, so, after this, uh, Abraham has just come from uh, rescuing his nephew Lot from the kings of the land that had come and invaded the city where his nephew Lot had chosen to live. Uh, it just tells me that Abraham is no milk toast dude. You know, he's... He, he's a warrior. He's a commander. He's a general. He's a leader. He, he's a leader representing the Lord, bringing the thunder, bringing the heat. He goes into territory, enemy territory, in order to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive. Lot was a casualty of uh, being in the culture and in the, in the wrong environment because of the choice that he made back in chapter 13. Poor choice he made in chapter 13 where he, he chose land that he chose land that looked good, but as Oswald Chambers would say, it wasn't good enough. Uh, Oswald Chambers says that the great enemy of the life of faith is not sin, but the good that is not good enough. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3. We see that in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent tempts Eve with the apple. It looked good. So she chose that. So Abraham comes to Lot's rescue and the Lord delivers the kings into Abraham's hands. And so at the beginning of chapter 15, we read, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. Uh, by the way, right now he's Abram. Eventually his name will be changed to Abraham. Abram means father. You know this already. Abraham means father of many. So... Don't let that confuse you. I'll, I'll probably just say Abraham. <clears throat> Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham said, You have given me no children. 
so a servant in my household will be an heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So the Lord took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Let's, let's stop there. So observe the flow. God speaks. Abraham protests. God reassures. Abraham believes. God speaks. Abraham protests. God reassures. Abraham believes. I love the grace of God in continuing to pursue Abraham. God speaks. He makes a promise to Abraham. I am the one who shields you who defends you against all your enemies. Your success that you just had in chapter 14, that was me. God himself is the shield. Now, um, you just got done with Ephesians as well, right? So you remember in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is going through um, the arsenal of God, uh, the armor of God, putting on the armor of God, telling us how we should put on the armor of God to, in order to stand firm. Well, you know that he says that the shield in God's arsenal is the shield of what? Of faith. The shield of faith. Now, I think that we forget sometimes that the size of our shield is not dependent on the size of our faith. It's not like if we have stronger faith, then our shield is larger at that moment, more encompassing of our body. Or if we are in a weak moment of faith, and then, our, then our shield is just small and, and, and dinky, leaving us vulnerable. We forget that God himself is our shield. I am your shield, he says. God himself is our shield and is not directly proportional to the size of our faith. God is not dependent on how much or how little faith we have. It's the size of our God that is the shield about us. Such that we can keep moving forward. That we can not give up, not quit. That we can keep going. God speaks, makes a promise. I'm your very great reward. But then Abraham protests. He pushes back a little bit. So what can you do about it, God? Thanks for the great reward. What, you know, I have no kids. The situation is impossible. There's no possible way for me to make happen what you say is going to happen. There's no possible way for me to have a big family, though I guess one of my servants could inherit everything and, and go on from there. God speaks again. No servant of your house will be your heir, but a son of your very own will be your heir. And to show him that he, he's not joking, God invites Abraham outside. They look up at the stars, and God commands him to start counting. Now, you know, there are just some things that you can only get when, when someone shows you something. You know, it's one thing for somebody to tell you, like I could tell you how big the planet Jupiter is, right? I could just tell you that Jupiter is really big, believe me. <laughs> okay. 
But if I told you that 1,321 planet Earths could fit into Jupiter, then you kind of begin to get an idea of just how big Jupiter really is. Or if I told you that each of us in our cells, in each one of our cells, we have six feet of DNA. So I'm six feet tall. In every single one of our cells. Now, scientists, you know, differ on how many actual cells we have in our bodies. The latest estimate is, you know, between 50 and 75 trillion cells, give or take a few trillion. So in our, in our DNA, we have six feet of, well, in our cells, we have six feet of DNA, 57, 50 to 75 trillion cells in our body. Okay, that's, that makes for a large number of DNA, right? Okay. That's a big number. Well, if we think about, if we, if we were shown that our DNA, if we, if we stood our DNA up, you know, six, six feet, we stood them up on top of each other, it would reach back and forth from the moon 8,000 times. Then we get, a, if, we, if we think of it that way, then we get an idea of just how much DNA is in our cells. So God takes Abraham outside. In the dark, shows them. Take a look. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let me show you how large I'm thinking of. God thinks on a lot larger terms than we do at times, most of the time. So, remember, it's in the Middle East, no electricity, it's dark, middle of the night. You know what I'm talking about if you go camping, you know, when you go get out of the city, get out of the city lights, you get out in, in uh, the country and you just look up, it's, and many of you have started to try to count just to see how far you can go. Um, did I just go off? Check, 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 check. Battery ran dead. Uh, I've been, uh, this whole too long. Cut me off. <laughs> All right. Count the stars. Um, so God takes him outside, says, counts the stars, and then Abraham gets it. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it as righteousness to him. And here we learn an important thing about faith. As Paul said, I'll put it like Paul put it, faith faces the facts. Doesn't run away from them. Faith faces the facts. Abraham faced the fact that it was physically impossible for Sarah and him to have a child. He knew Sarah couldn't have any kids, and believe me, in a culture where having a family and sons to carry on your ancestry and lineage was supreme above all else, to carry your name on in history, to not have any kids was a curse. And to have lived a hundred years, a hundred years, knowing the fact that you wouldn't have any kids. You know, I know some of you know that feeling all too well, all too personally. It's no wonder Abraham pushes back, protests. What can you do about it? Abraham faced reality. Faith faces the facts. It takes a look at the way things are, takes the facts into account, and then makes a decision. Which means that... Uh, even statements like, uh, you know, statements contrary to the Christian faith. Well, Christianity can't really be the way to God. Or everyone ends up in the same place anyway. We just take 
different routes to get there, but we're all going up the same mountain. Or, you know, Christianity may be fine for some people, but I just don't think that we should force our opinions on other people. Everyone just needs to do what works for them uh, and not bother too many other people with what works for them. Even statements like these are statements of faith. They take into account certain things in, in the world. They form a conclusion based on those things. But let me submit to you that those beliefs don't take in enough of the facts. Biblical faith faces the facts about any given situation, but also takes into account the greatest fact of God himself in any given situation. Faith takes into account more than what we can see, what we can touch, what we can feel. Biblical faith is not a blind faith. Abraham is not just exercising blind faith here, but he exercises, uh, he faces the facts, he faces reality, he knows what's in front of him, he knows his physical situation, but he also knows who his God is. And he decides that God was trustworthy. He decides to do what he said he would do. That is not an easy decision. Don't, I mean, don't think it was just an easy decision. He takes God seriously enough to complain about it to him. That's a lot better than just despairing about your situation in silence. God can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your pushback. He can handle your complaints. And it's this believing in God's trustworthiness that makes you a Christian. It makes someone a Christian. God credited it, deposited it into Abraham's relationship account with him. God credited it to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham is rightly related to God because he believed God was good. He believed God was trustworthy. He believed God was gracious and sovereign and in control of things. And he lived his life as if he really believed what he believed. If you ask someone, um, if you ask someone if they're a Christian and they say something like, well, I'm, I'm really... I'm really trying to be, or, uh, or I hope I am, or uh, I think so. Well, it shows that they have absolutely no idea what Christianity is all about. It's about a change of status. It's about what God has deposited in, into you, has given you. God considers Abraham righteous. Not because Abraham was trying to be a good follower or be a moral person or a decent chap or hold to a particular dogma or belief. God considers Abraham rightly related to himself because Abraham believed. Not just a mere intellectual assent to some good idea or abstract concept, but a whole life transformed and lived differently. Abraham believed in the Lord and lived his life in that direction. Not perfectly, but in faith. So God speaks. Abraham faces the facts, protests. God speaks again, reassuring Abraham of his promise. Abraham believes. Now God is going to speak again. We pick it up in verse 7. The Lord also said to him, I am the Lord. <laughs> who brought you out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. 
But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Here he goes again. Pushes back against what God has just promised him about giving him the land. How can I really know that you will come through for me? How can I know for sure? How can I know that you really do care for me? How do I know that you really love me? How can I know that you, God, will give me what your word says you will give me? How can I really know that you'll give me this blessing? And we've, we've all been there, folks. We've all asked that question. How can I know that you really are who you say you are? How can I really know that you will do what you say you will do? How, how can I know that you really do have a purpose for my life? You really uh, have made my life worth something and meaningful, and you're giving it direction somewhere. Look how God responds to such a question. So the Lord said to him, verse 9, the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a cow, a, a goat, and a ram. A heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, by the way, there's, there's other people living in the land like the Amorites. Uh, there's still a chance for these people, these, like the Amorites, to uh, come to faith in God as well through Abraham. God's not just running roughshod over the land, just kicking people out and say, uh, you guys are out, my people are in. It's when sin reaches its full climax that God has to step in and he uses Israel to step in to those situations. That's what he means by that last little, um, when sin is completed in, in the Amorites. So here we begin to tread on that sacred ground. Abraham asks, how do I know that you're going to bless me? God tells him to gather up all these animals, the heifer, the goat, the ram, the birds. And so when God tells Abraham to gather up all these animals, Abraham knows what God wants him to do. He's going to take a vow. He's going to make a contract with God. In those days, you didn't make a contract with someone by taking a little piece of paper that you signed. Uh, you to a bank or to a title company, have somebody stamp that uh, piece of paper with uh, a little stamp and some ink. In those days, you didn't do that. No, you entered into a, an agreement or a covenant with someone by doing what Abraham does here. Abraham knows what to do. Uh, this is a glimpse into one of the most ancient forms of covenant-making history. We're kind of looking 4,000 years back into history about how they did things back then. Uh, and the Hebrew word for making a covenant uh, literally means to cut a covenant. 
Abraham cuts up these animals. He places them in line with each other. And then the two parties would, uh, the two parties that are making the contract, they would walk through the uh, animals, they would walk through this bloody passageway together. As a way to say, may what's been done to these animals be done to me if I break the covenant. If I break my word, if I go back on my word, if I go back on what I'm agreeing with you, then may what's been done to these animals be done to me. So this is, this is pretty serious stuff. I, I told my church this morning that uh, I'm going to work this covenant-making process into our membership class so that people would really take it seriously. Um, I have not had anybody sign up for that class yet. <laughs> now, if one of those two people making the covenant was in a, um, a, a stronger position uh, community-wise, uh, reputation-wise, in kind of the more elite, more revered, a more honored relationship position than the, than the other, then that person's reputation would go before them. And only the weaker party would go through the bloody passageway. Abraham gets these animals ready to go. The birds of prey come, try to eat some dinner. Abraham fights them off because nothing is going to keep him from seeing how God is going to keep his promise. And I would encourage you, fight to keep the birds of prey Whatever that looks like for you, metaphorically, in your life. Fight off whatever tries to take away God's promise in your life. And then, Abraham falls asleep. <laughs> it's not a peaceful sleep. Uh, it's a thick and dreadful darkness that comes upon him. God speaks to him, tells him the truth. Your family, your descendants are going to be impressed, oppressed. They're going to be enslaved for a long time. But I will judge the nation that does so. And they will come out of Egypt with many possessions, just as you, Abraham, came out of Egypt with many possessions. And then look what happens next. Verse 17. So I think Abraham is still asleep here. I don't, I don't see anything that says he's woken up. When the sun had set, verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So this, this floating fire pot. Just walks, just goes through the, the pieces of animals. Abraham's over here asleep. He, he had been ready to make his vow. He's been ready to walk through the bloody passage, ready to say, I commit to you, Lord. I'm giving my life to you. But instead, it's this floating flame of fire and smoke that passes through the pieces. You know, in Exodus, we'll, we see God appearing as a pillar of fire, as a cloud of smoke to help and protect and encourage and warm and uh, guide his people. This is God passing through the pieces. It's God alone that's walking through 
the road of sacrifice. How do we know God loves us? How do we know that God promises blessing for us? Because he takes the curse of breaking the covenant upon himself. How can I know that you're going to give me this land, Abraham says. He, the Lord walks him through this procedure. Now, God is God. He, he's not going to break his part of the covenant. But he is so committed to Abraham. God is so committed to his plan for Abraham. God is so committed to his plan for the world through Abraham to do what he says he will do that God even takes Abraham's part in the covenant-making process and becomes the weaker party. If Abraham breaks the covenant, and he will, we all will, we all do. If Abraham breaks the covenant, God is saying, I love you so much that even when you break the covenant, may what's, be done, may what's been done to these animals be done to me. And it was. It was. 2,000 years later. Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, the man who was God, was cut off from the land of the living. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. On the cross, when Jesus was crucified, darkness settles on the earth. And it was very dark that day. On the cross, Jesus takes the curse upon himself. The curse of our sin. The curse of our selfishness. The curse of our darkness. The curse of our fear upon himself. The God of the universe comes down to take upon himself the curse of breaking the covenant. The Lord alone passes through the passageway. Abraham doesn't. God acts in the place of the weaker party, making his own self vulnerable to Abraham, to you, to the world. Now, I don't know if that makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, but that should. That, that, that's, that takes my breath away. There is no other God in history. There's no other God in the world. There's no other God of any other religion that would do something like that for us. So I'll close with an encouragement from um, a pastor in New York named Fleming Rutledge. Let the Lord take you out to see the stars where the flaming splendor of his appearance dispels your darkness. And above all, where he lays himself down in the corridors of death so that we, the children of Abraham, might by his blood attain to the promise of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you are trustworthy. So much so that we can 
have faith in you. A faith that faces the reality of what's going on in our lives, in our world. A faith that faces our fears. A faith that faces our confusion and pain. Even if things are going okay in our lives right now, we know of people whose lives are filled with pain and darkness and suffering. And I pray that you would uh, help us to see you for who you are, the vulnerable God that you are, the God who makes himself vulnerable, the God who speaks a living word into creation, into darkness, brings life Light out of darkness brings life out of death, brings life out of barrenness, brings hope out of hopelessness. Thank you that our fears and our darkness do not have the last word, are not an end in themselves, but are leading somewhere, that are going somewhere. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see. Just a little bit more tonight, who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.